Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg Swarovski. Here is an episode of Flick City for the Cinematics feed. I haven't posted too much interviews here on the feed because, well, we have that separate feed. Find your film for our interviews that Eric Holmes and I do separately. We have a lot of different directors and actors on that feed. Didn't want to jumble up this feed too much. But you know what? Once a month, once or maybe twice a month on the Cinematics feed, we will... I will post and upload a director or actor interview for two reasons in case the Find Your Film feed is just too flooded with interviews that we're doing. Or in this case, which is good, well, there is space on this month to actually put a couple of interviews that are very actually, I like to say the word value added, but definitely value added. And there is a lot of movies that come out every week, and a couple of these, at least I can vouch for a couple. I have not seen Shiro's. Okay, so one of the things for this feed is an interview with director Jordan Gertner that Eric Holmes conducted for a new movie called Shiro's. It's, it's out now. Let me check right now. What is it out? We reviewed it this week on Cinematics, but it stars Isabel Furman. I loved her from those orphan movies and a rowing movie that I completely forgot, but I really... It's not called The Swimmer or The Rower. I'm trying to think, but she was really great in that. But anyways, yeah, so Shiro's is one of the things that we're covering this week, and it is now in theaters and also available on digital. So you can actually purchase or rent Shiro's on digital. Also, I have two interviews this week, and I really love both of these movies. One of them is a, an interview with director Rodrigo Cortez. You might know him years back, almost a decade over, for this Ryan Reynolds film called Buried, which is a very, very interesting film. If you haven't seen it already, I think it's I think it's Ryan Reynolds in a coffin for, I don't know, maybe 90 minutes. So I've only seen the ending on YouTube, but I haven't seen, I haven't completely seen the movie, the Rodrigo Cortez Buried. I did see a movie he did in 2018 called Down a Dark Hall. I remember kind of liking that movie, but after interviewing him for his latest film, which is Love Gets a Room, by the way, Bruce Porky just texted me or actually messaged me on Facebook telling me how much he loved the movie. We'll be covering Love Gets a Room next week on cinematics as far as reviews and whatnot, because most people will get to see Love Gets a Room it, right now this for this weekend. It's in theaters in select cities, okay, but it's really under the radar. So hopefully if Love Gets a Room is playing in your city, I, I highly recommend you watching it, and I'll talk about that in a second. But then most of you will be able to watch it on demand, which is June 30th. So it, it's actually good for next week. Me, Eric, and Bruce will be reviewing Love Gets a Room next week for the on-demand release. But if you're, in the, if you're looking for a good movie this weekend, it might be worth watching as well. At least I think so. So another interview is my interview with... Um, Rodrigo Cortez for Love Gets a Room in theaters this week on demand. Next week, Shiro's is currently on digital. It's in theaters. I'm trying to think of the other movie, the other interview that I did. I'm spacing. I should have actually put some notes. Anyways, this week I'll be with Anderson. We're going to do a Patreon episode. And the Patreon episode with Anderson, I'm looking up the text. We're covering the year 1970, okay? And his pick for 1974. Our Patreon is Bloody Mama. I believe that movie, I haven't looked it up on IMDb. Bloody Mama stars, does it star Angie Dickinson? No, I think maybe Shelley Winters. 
Is it directed by Roger Corman? I don't know. I don't have the computer. I'm just flying off my little pea brain. Okay, so Bloody Mama is Anderson's pick for our our Patreon for this week. And then my pick is this Jack Nicholson movie called Five EVC Pieces. I think that was directed by Bob Rafelson. I haven't seen it for over 35 years, and I remember liking it. But I think, doesn't that have the famous Jack Nicholson scene about hold the something. But anyways, I I can't wait to see five easy pieces covered with Anderson. And then again, his pick for the Patreon is, what is it? Bloody Mama. Again, I don't, I think it's Shelly Winters, either Shelly Winters or Angie Dickinson. There was one more interview that I was going to cover. Hold on one second. Again, no notes flying off the, my stupid handle. One second. I am a moron. And you guys know this already. The last writer, the last bleeping writer I interviewed cyclist tour de france i i like to say tour de france because i i try to I do it with the cultures and try to do it with accents a little bit but a three-time door tour de france winner greg lamond or you can say tour de france as they say in america i'm american but i i try to I, I was i try to cater or condescend i don't know what it is or patronize or patronize i don't know i say tour de france okay but you can say tour de france let's say tour de france right now greg lamond three-time winner got to interview him for about i don't know i think it was eight or nine minutes with director Alex Holmes. They have a new movie called The Last Rider, and it centers on the cycling career. I don't even know if you say cycling or bicycle. I think it's cycling career, cycling career of Greg LeMond. Okay. This is a very, it's great. It's a great documentary. We did not cover it on cinematics. We did not review it on cinematics this week. That was my bad. Okay. Got that screening link last minute and every single week. You know, you have the whole Deandra Miranda each week, the whole cinematics intro. She's talking about only like 400 movies are released every week. I think there, there just seems, or a month, there just seems to be so much content out there that it's hard for us to swim through. It's hard for you guys to swim through. For me, The Last Rider is a movie, a documentary that I think you guys will really love. First, if you like cycling, if you're ever a fan of the Tour de France event, if you know who Greg LeMond is, he has a very inspiring story. While it focuses on his career, much of the film, much of the documentary focuses on his 1989 grueling Tour de France competition. And he, he goes up against a lot of, uh, a lot of cyclists, I believe. I'm trying to remember the name of his main adver- adversary. I'll look it up in a second, but it's fantastic. It, it's really, really good. It's in theaters. It's thrilling. It's inspiring. And it's one of those movies. If you do not get to see it, it's only in theaters this weekend. Okay. I mean, only playing in theaters this weekend. I don't know if it's going to be playing in theaters next weekend, but you can't see it on streaming or on demand. If you are looking for a cycling movie documentary this weekend, yes, The Last Rider is the one to go. And I asked Greg Lamont about his, how has he been able to persevere with that whole shooting accident? He had a shooting accident back a couple of years before his that, that night entering the 1989 Tour de France competition. I'm not going to say if he wins or not. I'm sure you can look it on uh, look it up on Wikipedia. I do not want to spoil that for you. If you definitely go see The Last Rider, okay, it's a very very good movie. Who is the it's yes, Laurent Fignon. Laurent Fignon is his main competition in that Tour de France in 1989, and it's a very great rivalry. Fantastic. I was riveted. It's again, it's directed by Alex Holmes. He directed a 
uh, what is that all that that boating movie Maiden from 2018? That's a movie that I really love too. So Alex Holmes, great interview with Greg Lamont. It's on our Deepest Dream YouTube channel. You can check it out. But I'm gonna pull that audio, put it in here for you guys to to hear what Little Last Rider is about. Shiro's. I really all I know is Eric Holmes liked it. It's a fun escapist adventure in theaters on digital. Stars Isabel Bell Furman, and I didn't get a chance to see it. But yes, finally, yes, Love Gets a Room. I don't know about the title. I, I'm not too crazy about the title. Love Gets a Room sounds like a either a film noir type of thing or maybe one of those salacious, softcore, 90, early 90s Red Shoe Diaries narrated by David Duchovny type of things. But Love Gets a Room is not that. It's a fantastic film set in 1942 Warsaw, directed by Rodrigo Cortez, and it's fantastic. It's part musical, part drama. The first opening shot, it's about, it's, I think it's a one taker, one take shot, about 10 to 12 minutes. As we see the main girl, the main character, Clara Rugard, she's just wandering through the Warsaw ghetto up until she gets onto onto the stage with her fellow troop of actors and workers. They're trying to put on a play for the people in Warsaw as they're trying to escape, at least for a few moments, from the hostilities of their environment, obviously. That Warsaw ghetto is occupied by the Nazis. So you get the Nazi element in this movie and Love Gets a Room. You also get the, the intermingling between the life outside in the ghetto as well as the life inside the play. So there's drama inside the play. There's the actual performance of the play. There's a lot of intricate, a lot of plot intricacies in Love Gets Room. The music is very, very good. I have it on my Spotify playlist to, to listen to. There's a great love song. I think it's, I forgot what it's called. I think it's called Without You or something, but it's so beautiful. And Clara Rugard, she, you might have seen her in, I don't know if you like teen comedies or not teen comedy, teen coming of age time travel movies. That's weird, right? That's a movie called Press Play, which came out, I think, last year. And Clara Rugard was very good in that. Better yet, though, most of you might see, might know her from that Netflix film with Hilary Swank from maybe three years ago plus called I Am Mother. And more recently, I am, look, I love Twilight Zone. I used to watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents out of fidelity to the past. I still haven't seen Black Friggin' Mirror. So I know she's on the new season of Black Mirror. I don't know what episode is it is, but Clara Rugard, she's Danish and she, I think she's going to be the next big thing. And maybe if I think the studio, the industry people already know that Clara Rugard's the, the big thing and she's going to get her share of meaty roles down the line. And you know what? On the present, Love Gets a Room is a very meaty role as well. So yes. So three interviews. I'm going to, what am I going to start off with? I'm going to start off with the interview with Greg Lamont and Alex Holmes for the writers. It's not Eric Holmes. It's Alex Holmes for the last writer. Okay. Again, in theaters only this weekend. Then we're going to go with Eric Holmes, mix it up a little bit with an interview with Shiro's director, Jordan Gertner. And finally, Love Gets a Room, my interview with Rodrigo Cortez. We're talking about me saying Tour de France. I try to actually speak a lot of Spanish and try to try to compliment him with his book. I think it's called Los Años Extraordinarios. And he was remarking how bad my Spanish was, which it is. I, I Los Años Extraordinarios. I, I, my, my, mi acento es muy, I don't even know how to say bad in Spanish. Malo? Anyways, horrible, horrible stuff. That said, hopefully you'll get some value from these three interviews. 
Patreon with Anderson next week. Some news regarding Anderson and cinematics next week as well. I'm going to announce that stuff on Patreon this weekend. I'm going to get on the video and talk to you guys about Patreon and, and reshaping that as well. Blah, blah, blah. Thank you guys so much for being part of our cinematics family. And special special shout out to William Lindis, who is amazing. He purchased a cinematics shirt on our merch store called Eric Holmes has been working hard on a merch store. He put a Miami Vice style shirt called Cinema Dicks and Dicks is not, we're kind of a family show, right? Dicks, he didn't mean Dicks as in the appendage or the love element in coitus. No, he he meant Dicks as in private eyes, private eye, right? Private eye. Okay, so Cinema Dicks. So thank you, William Lindis, for buying that shirt and modeling it on your Facebook feed. William Lindis also does a great podcast with his buddies called the Movie Bears Podcast. Give them a shout. I will put a link to that on the notes. And my this I my intros are horrible. So they're just too long and winded. But again, hopefully you'll get some value from these interviews. And most importantly, thanks again for supporting our show and keep on watching some really good movies this weekend. Hit us up. Tell us what movies movies we should watch and recommend. All right. Take care. Bye. Uh, first off, uh, The Last Rider, Alex, just like Maiden, absolutely inspiring. And it's one of these documentaries that one can just watch over time and time again. Uh, just on a semantics level, when one is credited as, as, as a writer for a documentary, how much work is put into that, into the writing? Because it just seems like a lot of immersive work as far as crafting a structure on a, on a very historical event and a very iconic human being. Well, you, you, you're, you've hit the nail on the head because I think the real, you know, the writing in um, in in a documentary is all about the the structure of the story. Is you know extracting from you know years and years of someone's life the key points and saying this is the you know if we connect these together it creates this 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 dramatic structure that tells the story that brings out the themes that you want to to explore. So 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 in a documentary, the writing is all about structuring the story. But you know what? In a in a narrative film, in 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 a superhero movie, it's also about the structure. You know, <laughs> storytelling is all about structure. So, uh, as a writer, so so I think that's that that that's the key to it. You know, obviously, all the words of Greg's, uh, you know, or they're the commentators or the other interviewees. I am channeling their words, but the the choices that you make as a uh, as a as a filmmaker, you know, those are absolutely key. And uh, you know, I I I think um, you know. You, you kind of when you've done your research and you've immersed yourself in these in in in, in what people tell you uh that what their experiences were you have to extract from that the way all of these different stories cohere and and the best story that it can tell together greg you've been asked this question a million times but i, I want to ask you this question but uh with when someone has trauma and just um very bad moments in their lives how does one persevere how were you able to not just persevere but to flourish because so many people, most people, when once they have trauma or just a, even a setback, a daily setback, one can slink into and make up excuses and just fall behind, but you progress forward. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, the trauma that I experienced before cycling was sexual abuse, which was shaming. And, you know, to tell my parents, and I think cycling probably did help save me and from a lot of uh, potential whatever, alcohol, drug abuse, whatever you want. I don't know what would happen, but cycling was, um, I discovered it. My dad started racing with me and it took me on an adventure that was so exciting. It was when I won my first Tour de France that I kind of just crazy as a, an adult, you'd actually think 
logically, why would this guy who abused me come up? But that was my first thing when I won my first tour. And that really took an edge off the joy of it, um, which is crazy when you think about it. But when I, the following year, I was shot in a hunting accident. And that's really from a physical and career perspective, that was um, probably the most difficult thing I've gone through uh, at that point. And I wanted to quit the sport uh, four weeks before I won my second tour. And it just taught me that you really, um, you, you got to know when to quit, <laughs> but you've got to give it everything you can till you've tried everything. And, and I was fortunate. My wife has been such a great partner with me and, and she convinced me, Hey, you, you know, you can quit, but just ride it out to the end of the season. And it was like a pressure valve. I think I expected so much of myself in every single race I went to. And, and I didn't, I probably wasn't quite acknowledging the the real physical damage that happened to me in my hunting accident kind of blindly going forward. But um, anyways, I, it's, it's taught me a lot of stuff after my cycling career, there's been a lot of adversity that I've had to go through and, and I've used that same mindset to uh, get over some very difficult periods. You know, Greg, what did you see? What did you see in Alex as a filmmaker where you could entrust your story and your life with him as a filmmaker? And then on the flip side, Alex, what, what what's it like to actually get to know your subject, maybe even become friends, but then you also, you have it, your primary job is to make the best documentary possible to actually see it also with an even eye, maybe from the point of view of a journalist. So just both those kind of questions. You want me to? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I met Alex. He was doing a movie called uh, Stop at Nothing. It was more about doping and, and cycling and obviously Lance Armstrong. And I got to know him. I think then he, we watched a couple of other, his films and, but most importantly, I could tell he was a nice guy and I don't need to, I don't want, I don't expect somebody just because he's nice or I'm who I am that they would, you know, should bias the film in my perspective, but you do have to trust people to be honest. And because there's always, I've had journalists that have had an agenda and it wasn't really to re- report something that was both transparent. They came in with a mindset to set up to kind of, you know, they didn't like me, whatever it was. So it was most importantly is just be able to trust somebody that you could talk to him or at least take them all his information and present it honestly. And I think he did a really good job at that. And for you, Alex, just. And and for me, well, I, I, I can only say that it feels like the greatest privilege to be led into someone else's life when they, when they, open themselves up as completely as Greg and Kathy did to me. I mean, I, I feel really honored by the, the trust that they they put in me. And I also feel the responsibility to, um, uh, you know, to do a good job, you know, a responsibility, you know, to Greg and Kathy and to the audience to, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, how many more films uh, will be made about this subject? I need to make it the best it can be. And and fortunately, Greg and Kathy really helped me with that by by giving me everything. You know, they they really held nothing back. And 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 I think that's really fortunate. It still feels to me as a filmmaker the greatest privilege there is to to be given access to to people's you know innermost feelings, the 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 intimacies of their relationship. And it's a beautiful thing because it allows you to tell you know, really inspiring stories. Final couple of questions. First off, Greg, um, just in a big picture perspective with Lamont bikes, has that been a more of a, a set? can you talk about your passion behind that and how, how big of that has been? How, how big of it has it been in your life as far as Lamont bikes go? Well, I actually started my bike in 1986. And at that time I 
used the first carbon fiber frame in the sport. And I realized equipment's very important. So I started my bike company just purely to find artisans that were more advanced than the big companies. And that's the bikes that I've used in my career were, they were individuals that came up with a composite carbon fiber frame. So that's how I started my bike company. And it's, I had a, a relation with Trek company for about 15 years that ended in not the best way. It was, um, mainly because Armstrong interference, <laughs> let's just say. And then, but I really love design. I love product and uh, I have a lot of ideas. I'm, I always think just in, in my whole career, we have always important about ergonomics, fit position, aerodynamics. But now that I'm not a professional cyclist, I can relate to a lot of the more average riders, people who might be getting into cycling. I decided coming back with my brand to come in with e-bikes and mainly because e-bikes are, were really exploding in Europe, but I got on one in 2013 after I broke my back in a car accident. And I instantly felt like I was in good shape and which actually pushed me to exercise more because in order to find something you do for life, you have to find something you love to do and cycling. That's a lot of people have gotten hooked on it. And I look at e-bikes as a, as a segue to become a lifetime cyclist and you could work out exactly as hard as you can a mechanical bike. You just have a lot more fun. <laughs> That's about it. So I, 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 I'm a product. I love making stuff. I have a lot of design ideas, but, but I, you know, I love architecture. That's what most people don't know, but I'm, I'm really into product. I, I was always very interested in technical stuff. When I was cycling, I was the first athlete to use an Oakley prototype. And then I helped create a company called Giro Helmets with my kind of my design really that first helmet. So it's always what beauty about cycling. It's, 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 if you didn't like equipment, like uh, cars, you'd be a runner. But if you are somebody who likes to do exercise, but likes the technical part, say that's why a lot of car racers, they, they ride bikes. So there's that kind of mechanical to physical uh, marriage, which is um, it's how I won my last tour de France, believe it or not, a, a, a triathlon bar, um, our coach, Cyril Guimard, who was coaching L'Enfignon, he was the leader in aerodynamics. They had that bar, but they decided not to use it. I'll be honest, I might not have won that tour um, had he used the bars. So, But that's the sport of cycling. It isn't just you have to make a decision every race you do, what kind of equipment you you race on. And that's part of the strategy. That's kind of the beauty of cycling. Cool. And finally, Alex, just very quickly, after someone watches this film and then they're, they're going to be led to watch Maiden, what's the next piece of from your body of work that you would recommend for the cinephile to screen and why? Uh, well, um, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I, I love making documentaries uh, because they are, um, you know, they're, 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 they're real life stories. Uh, but sometimes there comes along a story that, that you really want to tell. Uh, that is a beautiful story, but maybe the footage doesn't exist. And, and I'm about to start on one of those right now. I've just finished a script uh, for um, a, a boxing film, actually, about a, a young uh, Welsh boxer called Johnny Owen uh, uh, and his relationship with his dad. So it's a kind of father-son re relationship story. And uh, we're just going out to cast now. Hopefully we'll be in production with that next year. Uh, uh, it's called Skin and Bone. Um, and uh, uh, I, I hope that what I, I'll I'll be able to recommend that film to people when it comes out next year. Thank you both for so much for your time. I really love the documentary and just the best to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, hey, Eric, how you doing? <laughs> Not bad. How how you doing today? 
I'm good. I'm good. I love your backdrop. Oh yeah, it's it's kind of nice. It's a movie I saw. It was really good. You should check you, it out. You, you look like you're the fifth Shiro there. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't identify that way, but yeah, uh-huh. maybe, who knows? Um, but anyway, I'm here with uh, Jordan Gertner. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Um, so I guess I'll start off with uh, primarily a producer and. Look, Spring Breakers, Killer Inside Me, Bully, Virgin Suicide, Buffalo 66. Like, we mostly cover indie movies, and I just read off like a, a killer's row of bangers. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what made you finally take the jump into directing? Well, you know, I always had the desire to direct movies um, ever since I got out here to L.A. And, you know, fortunately, I got onto a, a role of producing films uh, that I was incredibly proud of. And um, that became my focus. Uh, and then once we, um, you know, once once COVID kind of came around and there was some time to focus on something else, uh, I knew it was time to kind of take this opportunity uh, to direct a film. So I put all my energy and focus in terms of packaging and building out this film. Um, and that became, you know, this first opportunity that I, you know, longed for for years. Yeah. And what was there, uh, was there anything like, uh, I mean, you produce so much, so I, I assume you went in knowing full well what you were getting into, but was there any sort of surprises or any changes from moving from producer to director that uh, maybe you didn't foresee? I was surprised at how much I loved it. You know, I, I, I knew I would enjoy the process, but I didn't know I would enjoy this creative process nearly as much as I did. It yeah. was just incredibly rewarding and it was, you know, filled with smiles. And um, I just, you know, that that was kind of the biggest surprise to me. Yeah. And you also uh, you wrote Shiro's uh, along with uh, looks like you had Cam 48 in pre-production. Um, what was the, the like, did you have? um did you have the story in your head for a while that that's why you wanted to direct it? Or is it something like, uh, did it maybe the idea come up later or. Um, in terms of Shiro's. Yeah. Yeah. No, Shiro's was something that I wrote to direct. This was a story that I, that I had in my head and uh, was able to kind of translate that, that to paper. And by the time we got to Thailand, um, like I've always said, if you could just plug into my brain, we wouldn't have had to make the movie. But, you know, to kind of have that opportunity to work with these amazing women and and build out this world was was great. So the idea was I, I write this story and then I move forward to direct it. Yeah. Also, I, I guess speaking of plugging into your brain, what's your thoughts on the writer's strike as of now? Or is that is that part like you normally do indie movies? So is that even part of your world at the moment? Uh, it's not presently part of my world, but I absolutely like support the writers and like want what's best for them. So I certainly hope that they come to a resolution that, um, you know, they're comfortable with and creates like a clear path forward for them to be um, financially successful in the future. And uh, like, uh, so as far as like being a producer, like what's what what goes into your head um, as far as choosing projects? Like what, 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 like when you're looking at something, what, what makes you say, I, I want to help bring this to life. Um, for me, it's, uh, it's just, you know, if I read a script and I connect with the material, you know, when I read a script and I kind of see that movie in my head, um, and it'll all depend on like potentially like who's directing the film as well. Um, and then, you know, if it's a story that I'd like to be a part of help being told, um, I'll get involved from a producerial standpoint. You know, it's like, there's, there's a lot of movies that I'd like to see get made 
Um, and I feel fortunate that, you know, I now have the opportunity where I can read a script and want to produce a movie and not want to direct it, but feel passionate enough about wanting to get that particular film made. Yeah. And, and I, I guess, uh, why, why directing now? Like, is it just, uh, that difficult to get a movie made in that regard or, um, did you just finally feel confident to start doing that now or it was, it was confidence and timing, you know, the timing worked out. Um, and I felt certainly ready to, um, you know, step behind the camera and direct my first film. Um, so it was just, yeah, it was just, you know, timing, confidence and, and feeling like having worked on these films over the years that I, that I, you know, knew I could make a good film. Yeah. Also, I usually say this for the end, but uh, given what you have worked on previously, um, we have a what's in the box segment. And these uh, are movies that are generally go under scene um, that you like, um, that uh, you wish more people would would check out. And the funny thing about your your producing credits is a lot of the movies on there are people movies that people would actually put in the box and uh, we get excited to watch. But so I'm really curious to hear like uh, what are some of your movies you would like to put in the box? Are these movies that I hope people would watch? Yeah. Yeah. Something that it's like, man, that movie's so good, but no one just, just no one talks about it. I wish they would. So we put it in the box and then we'll, we'll draw one out every week to watch it and talk about it. I mean, I would actually pick some of the films that you mentioned that I would love people to see. I mean, uh, Larry Clark's film Bully, um, I think, is an excellent film that people should check out. Uh, Michael Winterbottom's film The Killer Inside Me, another great one to check out. Um, a film, one of my first films I worked on was uh, Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66. Yeah. Yeah, uh, our, uh, our our co-host is... Uh, uh, he he loves that movie so much. He had to ban it from his own podcast because he talked about it so much. <laughs> He's like, I, I, I'm done. I can't talk about this. <laughs> but uh, I think like those would be great films that uh, may have flown under some people's radar. Um, that would be uh, worthwhile committing your time to watch. Yeah. And what what's uh, maybe a couple of movies that you haven't worked on that uh, you particularly like? Oh my goodness. I, you know, it's just, uh, I'm drawing a bit of a blank right now, to be honest with you. Um, air buddies too. I'll mark that down. Pardon me. <laughs> I said air buddies too. I'll mark that down. There you me. go. There you go. <laughs> cool. And so what's, uh, I see you got a uh, cam 48 in pre-production. What can you tell us about that? Cam 48 is a film that I'm incredibly excited about. Um, I wrote this particular one with another incredibly talented writer and it's essentially the story of this street hustling woman who's into sports gambling and owes a lot of money and ultimately finds a camcorder in a pawn shop that she realizes shoots 48 hours in the future. So uh, she runs around town using this camera to her benefit and advantage until an extreme disadvantage presents itself to her uh, by the course of using it. Oh, nice. So another great, fun, crazy ride. All right. And when, when's that one due out? So well, I guess, uh, I guess it's pre-production, probably too that, early. That were in pre-production, so hopefully um, yeah. next year we'll be talking about Camp Forty Eight. Oh, I'd be, I'd be looking forward to that. I I, I really enjoyed uh, Shiro's as well. It was kind of uh, it, I wasn't quite sure what to expect going in because I you know don't usually watch the trailers before I watch the movie. Try try to go in as cold as possible, but it it was real fun, really funny, and I I especially like the uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, Taken. Here, uh, here, I write this. Just write exactly what I wrote. Okay. 
Yeah, fantastic. That was a really uh, great scene to shoot. And Isabel just kind of knocked that out of the park. Um, and that was a great moment for me. You know, just um, uh, I remember when that idea popped into my head thinking, you know, there's some things when you write, you uh, you kind of laugh at the screen and you say, we can never do this. <laughs> and um, to know that, you know, uh, Luke Busson and Europa Corp were supportive and they let us do that and to come and shoot that scene that day. Uh, was just was tons of fun, and uh, I'm really proud of that moment, as I am with you know all the other moments in the film. Yeah, what, what's the writing process for you? Like, uh, like do you just like uh, write a couple like write a couple pages, and it's like oh I got nothing, and then just come like keep coming back to it and take a long time, or is it really short? Or uh, for me, it's kind of like I get this 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 idea in my head, and I let that idea kind of like grow and grow, and it almost becomes like a movie in my head. Um, and then I sit down and I just kind of like open the floodgates and um, just let it all come out and the story unfolds. And then I go back and I tweak and I fix and I tweak and I fix and I share with people and get their thoughts. And then ultimately it becomes a, a story. And a, and then if if you're lucky, like I am with Shiro's, it becomes a movie. Yeah. And I guess uh, like so you, so you have the screenplay done. What's the what's what's the next step? Like, uh, granted, you've you've made movies, but like someone, uh, maybe well, a listener, what, they what, they write a script. What's the next step into? So you you write the script, and then you you you've got your you know you've got your project. Um, then you need to go and cast your film. So you know, uh, I had the opportunity to work with a fantastic casting director, um, two people that I've worked with in the past, and um, and then we just started casting the film. And once we kind of built the cast. Um, you know, we went out and we acquired uh, finance and distribution. Um, and then we went to uh, Thailand and went into prep, shot the movie, uh, came back, posted the film, um, and then delivered it. And now I'm incredibly excited to say on, you know, June 23rd, uh, everybody can enjoy this experience that we all spent so much time working on. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's here at uh, Select Theatres and Digital, June 23rd. Uh, what, what, what theaters? Um, is that just uh, is that just a uh, uh, New York uh, I, California the theaters thing? are still uh, being confirmed which particular ones, but that'll be out relatively soon. Okay, because I, I I think this would be a really fun one to watch in theaters, like uh, the, you know, full crowd. It's it's got that it's got that kind of energy to it. I think you know that's what I really wanted to do with this film. Like for me, going to the movies was like you know you jump on this ride and uh, it's this magical ride that takes you away from everything going on in the world around you. And I feel like that's kind of what Shiro's does. Like, you know, you go on this journey with these incredibly talented women um, and kind of get lost with everything else that that you may have been focusing on when you walked into that theater. And um, yeah, you know, you can go check this out in, in a theater. I certainly think that you will enjoy the experience. Yeah. Well, uh, Jordan, uh, thank you for joining me today. And I, I hope this does well. And I cannot wait to see what the Cam 48 is. Um, the little bit you described sound pretty, pretty great. And yeah, just looking forward to what other kind of bangers you release out onto the world. Uh, well, it was a pleasure meeting you, Eric. Thank you so much for taking the time. Ladies, two minutes to cotton today. They will take their hands out of their coats and clap. We have to go on stage. They make a good couple, don't they? We have to talk. We're leaving the ghetto. What? We're leaving the ghetto, you and me, tonight. Patrick wants to escape tonight after the show. But do you want to go with him? No. Do you want to stay here? No. I want to be with you. Besides you.
I've loved a lot of men. Believe me, there's always another. Go with Patrick. I don't love him. If he won't let you go, then maybe... Maybe what? Maybe he doesn't really love you. Read your next song for someone who cares about you. What matters here is being loved, child. Not loving. What happened here? What have we done? What have we done to what? To live like this. Romeo and Juliet were fools. Who wants to die for love? Why is it so easy for you to give me up? Because I don't want you to die. We're all going to die. We're already dead. Did you accept your danger? Stop it! What the going on here? Sit! Stop it! What would you be willing to do to leave the ghetto? Anything. I won't leave Edmund. Then you'll die here. You think I'm happy about staying, that I want to die here? This is what we are! What we have left! Stuff up your loves. It's the eternal question. You're making a mistake. Can't trust anyone anymore. What would you do for me? I haven't done anything. No, of course not. Rodrigo, first of all, you know, you, you've been asked this question a bunch, but, you know, mise-en-scene, the opening moments just gets you. And I know you're a lifelong cinephile. How ambitious was that? And when did you get the guts to say, I'm just going to go for it? It's like a 10 or 11 minute, seemingly single take. And my goodness. So, yeah, you're right. I, I decided in the very moment I, I started doing the rewrite of the spree for some reason. I felt that it needed to be a long take. Maybe because I felt that the movie needed to be not only a film to be seen, but a film to be experienced. And and I felt that it needed to be sensorial and, and physical. And also, as you perfectly know, most of the film happens inside a theater. But this theater is not anywhere. It's in the heart of the Warsaw Ghetto. So I, I thought that the audience needed to feel it, not only to know that it was in the ghetto, but to know how living in the ghetto was. So this way we could follow our main role, Stevcha, while she, I don't know, she she goes through a checkpoint or she escapes from uh, from, from some chase or while, while we see the markets or we get inside this theater. And, and actually in the, in the script, you can read at the beginning from now on until we say differently, everything will be in a long take. And about 30 pages later, you can read now this long take ends. That's amazing. You know, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I think it's hard to find that definition of what a movie star is. And I feel. I've always felt that Clara Rugard has that. Do you agree with me on that? And if she does have it, Rodrigo, from your vantage point, what is it specifically that she has? No, she does. She does. She has it. She has it. I felt it in the very first moment I I saw her. The the, the movie has some classic heart, though it's very contemporary in informal uh in a formal sense. But the heart is pretty classic. This heart of Lubitsch or Billy Wilder. And I felt this was one of these movies that if, if it was made in the fifties, probably a star like Ingrid Bergman would have done. 
So I, I felt something like that. And also um, the, the needs for this role were very, very demanding because she needed to be a phenomenal actress, of course, but also to sing beautifully. And, and not only to sing beautifully and dance beautifully as, as Clara does. Actually, actually in Copenhagen, she's Danish. She was little Annie when she was six in, in the Copenhagen theater. And, and, and she only, she didn't only need to sing beautifully, but to do such again and again, because all, all the songs you hear are happening live. All the sound you hear uh, doesn't come from some playback, but it's happening live like it was um, a dialogue every time, every take. Uh, so she definitely has it and not many, not many actresses in the world. Do. You know, not to get too serious, but in the movie, Stefja talks about how she wants to continue to perform because there are people who depend on them to help them take the pain away just for a moment. And it seems for you as a filmmaker, you're not just a director, you're a novelist, you're an editor. So how important is it for you to help? I mean, people escape for a little bit and take that pain away, even though you're doing things, telling stories. I'm thinking about the end of, of Buried, telling stories that are uncompromising. How important is that for you to reach people like that? I think it is important to me, and it's it's not important at all uh, for the world, because uh, the, 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 the real power of art is that it's useless. And the most important things in the world are useless. What's the Nin Symphony for? For nothing. It just makes the world better. The, the, the good thing with art is that it's inevitable. That's what we are. That's how we communicate. It cannot be avoidable because it's how we express. And to me, it's way more important to believe in this that, than thinking that you have some grave responsibility or you are more than a filmmaker, or that you 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 are gonna improve the world because you are entitled to teach lessons or anything like that. I I, I, don't, I don't feel that way. I think that you need to trust story itself, and you need to trust your characters, and you have to show who they are. They don't need to be archetypes. They they don't need to serve some crucial goal. They need to be human. They need to be ambivalent. They need to be contradictive. And if you do that, then what you do will resound. And probably it will still resound in 20 years. While if you try to teach a lesson now, probably you will be out of order in a couple years. You know, Rodrigo, this is probably an answer that will take a long time to, to <laughs> answer. But I, I interviewed Martin Scorsese years ago and I asked him what. What makes him passionate as a filmmaker? And he said, well, even to this day, to see the movement of cinema, to see images move from one, from one place to the other, the composition, still he's passionate about it. So, but you're also an editor. And I, I wonder where does that passion come from? Because I always have this mythic dream of or vision of editors wanting to stay with the material for so long and perfect it and shape it. Where does that part of your artistic passion for the editing your stuff to? I had to tell, I was always sensitive to these director editors for somehow. I, I, I always felt, even when I was a kid, uh, the power of fragmentation. I, 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 I felt the, the puzzle. And actually, Scorsese himself is probably 
the reason why why I make movies because I I, I learned from him that the what is the how and the how is the what. When you see these Buster Keaton movies and when you see these Hitchcock movies, you immediately see that movement comes out from fragmentation, from juxtaposition, from the clashing of uh, shots. And and to me, editing is not a technical art at all. It's narrative. This is storytelling itself. You look for con- continuity, but not the continuity of 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 the movement, but the continuity of the emotion. You try things to be fluid. You try to manage um, the audience's attention to anticipate what they are gonna see and feel, and you try to not stop their uh, flowness. It's it's hard to tell, but this is what you try to. To, to manage with. And this is probably where the cinematic fact happens inside an editing room. Of course, you need to write something, then you need to direct it and search for truth. But movies are made at the editing room. Yeah. Um, a couple of final questions, Rodrigo. Uh, you know, can you, you mentioned Scorsese, but right off the top of your head, can you name a specific movie that continues to inspire you as a cinephile. And then the second part of it is I do a podcast and I ask filmmakers to pick a movie from their body of work that they feel might be underrated or overlooked. And what is that film that you want me and my audience to watch and talk about and discuss? So those two questions. Uh, probably any day I would, I would choose a different film, but, but today probably there's Sala by Akira Kurosawa. I don't know if you remember oh. this one he made in Russia. I've never seen that from Kurosawa. I saw Red, I, my favorite is uh, Redbeard. I've seen a bunch of his movies, but Dursu I haven't Zala haven't seen. What makes it special for you? It's hard to tell. There's no many chances to see humanity as well expressed and, and in this uh, movie in all its hardness and, and and rawness. This is not a movie about being good or bad, but about being how the world is, how nature is. Nature is good and also savage and and implacable and and and, and it's so 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 beautiful. It's a two hour and something a beautiful movie done in the heart of the uh, taiga in the middle of real nature with all its pain. And, and and trust me, when you see it, it's going to be one of the most amazing and beautiful experience you are always going to have. You are ever going to have. Sorry. Yeah. And regarding mine, it's hard to tell because we we all tend to to love our damaged children, all those those children that don't have so many friends, and <laughs> and we try to take care of them. When I, I remember when I released Red Lights. I I didn't feel that in that moment it was I don't know if understood maybe this is a too grave word but it was felt the right way probably because it was made after buried and when you do something really singular in some way you expect something similar or you demand to live a similar experience and when it's totally different you feel some kind of unconscious frustration probably but probably I, I would choose red lights today. Okay. And then uh, final couple of questions is how pleased were you with just the overall music in this movie? It's the, the um, just the, you, you 
played a big hand in it with the writing, but just, I'm sure it must have been hard work to come together, but just listening to it must, and I'm sure with an audience must make you feel really good. It, it, it was an amazing thing to do because this, this play, which is the heart of the film actually existed. It survived. The text survived. The, the, the song survived, but not the music, not the music, only the lyrics. So we needed to reinvent it. We needed to recompose all these songs in the tradition of the theater of the late 30s. So it, it was a joy. It was a blast. It was so hard also. But it, it, this is one of the most rewarding experiences uh, we had. And finally, Rodrigo, I, 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 can, I know maybe several words in Spanish, and I really want to brush up on my <laughs> Spanish is. And I'm, I'm thinking of reading books in Spanish to actually help me. Help me. Would that be good? And should I start off with El Años Extraordinarios? As, as one of my first primero uh, books. Los uh, años extraordinarios. Yes, yeah. no, no, no matter how bad it's your Spanish, it's probably better than my English. I, I apologize. Oh, no, I apologize too. <laughs> it is a president perdón, so, so I apologize. So. But yeah, this is my last uh, novel. Uh, and it's very, very different from my movies, actually. It's very literary if it means something. And it plays hard with language. In this, in this case, with literal language. I mean, when I make movies, I also trust language, cinematic language, which doesn't happen so much nowadays. It seems like people trust more and more in simple coverage. You do a couple of medium shots, maybe a general shot, and then some editor does the trick. But I still believe in taking choices. <laughs> Rodrigo, thank you so much for, for your time. really love the film and hope to talk to you next time for, I believe, Escape. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.